Good morning. Scripture today is taken from the passage from Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 21. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming by the way that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of his life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish inf infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. How's everybody been? I feel like it's been forever. Um, my family just got back from this epic vacation that we just took. It was the longest vacation that we've ever taken as a family. Um, we took a trip to Italy, and my goal was to get tan and look Italian. Um, I accomplished one of those. Um, but I really do just want to hop into my message. But before I do, um, I want to pray. So please pray with me. <clears throat> Father, these are your people. And you have a message for them. And so I pray that you would use 
these words for your purpose. And we surrender them to you. And Spirit, come and reveal where we have missed you. Come and reveal what you are doing now. And let us follow you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, the title of my message is uh, The Normal Christian Life. And um, it's a message that I've been wrestling with uh, for a number of months now. um, And I've wanted to preach repeatedly, but God wanted to continue to work on me um, in it. And um, it was inspired really by two separate things. Um, The first was the modern-day prophet, Childish Gambino. Um, His his music video uh, for his song, This Is America, uh, is one of the most brilliant um, depictions of the reality that we're currently facing in our cultural time. Uh, It is brilliant, but it is also gut-wrenching, so you've been warned. Um, because what it does is it puts the paradox of America right in your face, of this reality where we have achieved much, and there is much to be joyful and celebratory about, um, and there's ways in which we can express our life, and yet at the same time, all of this is happening on the backdrop of consistent racism and gun violence and just rampant um, anger and hatred that exists inside of our culture. And that was before yesterday in El Paso and Dayton. And to watch that film, you're forced to deal with the fact that America has accomplished great things. But we have a long way to go to really solve the problems that we're all facing. And what struck me as I was watching it was, what would that music video look like if it was, this is Christianity? And we were forced to kind of face some facts that there's been a lot of good that Christianity and the church has been able to do, but at the same time, there's a backdrop of we are very uh, different from what God has asked us to be. That if we were very honest about our Christian lives in the church and to compare it to the scriptures, we would see that we have created a construct of church that looks very little like the Bible, that we've created lives that very little look like Christ, and we'd be forced to face with those facts. So that was the first thing. It wasn't exactly the most joyful thing to face. But the second was a conversation I had shortly after watching that again with a friend of ours who came to visit. We've been in part of churches with us in the past. And she asked about you. Tell me what's going on in your church. I haven't talked in a year. What's happened? (laughs) Not much. Um, And I just began to tell her about God's presence showing up about a year ago. And taking over and moving and dictating what happened here more than our own bias, more than our own preference, more than our own desires. And I just told stories. Told stories about how there have been moments during worship and sermons where the Spirit of God has felt so present that many of us just wept. Tears of joy, tears of relief, of healing, of hope. God moving in us beyond our own physical ability to contain. Other times talking about embracing that we can pray for physical and emotional healing and we can see it in an instant and telling the stories of how that happens in our midst and then even describing the ways in which it happens, which is not what we would have designed or preferred, how praying for people at times they have been overwhelmed by God to the point where they fall over, 
and not knowing exactly what to do in those moments, but to recognize as they get up with joy and peace and a confidence that God loves them, that it was actually good and not freaky. And I did, as I began to just unpack these things, she looked at me and said, what, are we talking about church? That doesn't sound anything like church. And uh, it really has rung true in me that that doesn't sound anything like church. Um, for much of the life that I've experienced inside of the church. And so the question that I've wrestled with as I've reflected on our past and I've looked to our future is, what is our normal? What is the normal Christian life that you, as a part of this church, are called to live, that I'm called to participate with you in? Is it what has happened over the last year, or is that an abnormality, a fluke, a blip on the plan of God for us? And in wrestling with it, I've just had to kind of face the facts and discussing with people that many of us just live with so little awareness of God in our lives, that we've actually become um, satisfied and settled with the fact that God may intervene in the crisis moments, but outside of that, I'm not sure he's really interested in the day-to-day. And we live with so little concern with how our, the spiritual reality is engaging the present practical things that we are facing. And God is so tired of that. And I am tired of that. I am tired of a Christianity that has no power, that is so passive, and at times can be just pathetic in its effect on the world. So, what is the normal Christian life? How would you define it? What is your normal Christian life? What is your experience of God? What is your experience of the church? And what, are, what does God want for us? So in answering that question, I want to unpack it in three sections. Uh, our normal, meaning how do we define it? How, our normal understanding of God and what He asks of us. And then looking at what is God's normal. And then looking at what it looks like for each of us to position ourselves for God's normal over what we might be comfortable with as our normal. Because right now is a good time to face what is normal in our lives before September comes, right? Because that's the fall sprint, the chaos hits, and if we think your schedule is busy now, it is nothing like what it's going to be. And so if we can begin to face that our Christian lives don't match up often with what God is asking, we can begin to set new rhythms that will prepare us for what God has for us in the fall. So let's start with our normal. So in this passage in Ephesians, Paul describes God as a mystery, And his plan as a mystery wanting to be revealed. And God is a mystery, but how do you define him in the mystery of your life? More often than not, we tend to use two different ways. And that's our vision and our experience. And by vision, I mean we try to answer the question, is God real? And if he is real, what does he want? What is he like? Does he even care about what's going on in my life, or is he some distant deity that has kind of started things and stepped back to see what we're going to do? Is God active and present, or is he afar and just watching? What is your vision of God? And secondly, we add to that our experience, largely of the church and other Christians. And as Janice was sharing, that's where it gets kind of dangerous, Because there's some of you here that have been in churches where God's presence and His power is normal. 
You've, even some of you just came to LMCC over the last year, so this is all you know of church, which um, is mostly good. Um, and that can become your normal, but it's confusing for a number of us that can come from religious backgrounds that didn't expect God to show up. They didn't expect God to interrupt or intervene or they really saw God as someone that did something in the past that we just have to learn about and learn from and return to over and over again, but we're not so sure he's active now. And that can be confusing. And even worse, some of us come from backgrounds where the idea of God's presence and power has been abused and has been misused to the point that we want none of it and we're skeptical and doubting. And I just want to confront how poor it is to try to define God by our own limitations. Because your vision is limited, and your experience is limited. You only have your experience to define it, or others around you, but we don't have the full global experience. Our family just got back from Italy, and to go to these different cultures, to go to these old churches... And to recognize a different experience of God than we've experienced is forces me to recognize that I have a limited understanding of who God is and what He is doing around the world. It forces me to say that if I define my experience by that, I have limited God by my own limitations. And what we do in that situation is we allow our bias and our preference to determine who God is and what He does and what He doesn't do. And that was Paul's problem. Paul writes this letter, but well before that, he was Saul, the religious leader, and he was the best student of the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew it more than you and I will ever fathom. But his religious background and his understanding of the study of the Scriptures had caused him to limit God to the point that he did not see Jesus for who he was, and he hated him. He was angry with him to the point that he persecuted and tried to destroy the church. His religious background had blinded him to the truth of who God was. And I wonder if that's happened with you. That your background and your experiences, rather than defining your Christian experience in good ways, have served as blinders, have not allowed you to see God for who He is and what He wants to do in your life. And for Paul, what happened is that God had to show up in power and blind him to show him how blind he was. And for three days, he was blind until someone came and prayed over him to receive his sight again. And it changed him forever because he finally saw Christ for who he was, not some construction in his own imagination of who he was. And we need the same thing to happen. And so the question is, how do we avoid reducing God to our own limited vision and experience? Well, for Paul, it was by revelation. And for us, it is by revelation. And it was revelation through the scriptures and revelation through the Holy Spirit. And we cannot divorce the two. There's a tendency and a temptation to try to look one over the other instead of allowing them to inform each other. Because it was through the Holy Spirit that Paul was able to see all of his studies in a new light. To see Christ come forward through the Old Testament. To declare who he wanted to be and who he wanted to become. And what he was going to do in establishing his kingdom. But the scriptures alone are not enough. We are desperate for God himself to show up in the Holy Spirit to keep speaking. It's not that he will contradict the scriptures. 
It's that he will speak from them and affirm them and apply them in new ways. We just sang new wine. We are in need every single day of a new word from God. And that only comes by God himself revealing it. And so the question is not, will we, um, will we let our vision and our experience define it? It's, will we allow revelation to define our vision and experience? So that the revealed scriptures tell us this is who God is. And that the Holy Spirit illuminates our experiences to the point that says, that actually wasn't God when it hurt you in the church. That actually wasn't God who, when someone betrayed you and harmed you. That's not God. God has come to heal, not kill. God has come to restore and not destroy. Um, for me, this happened uh, Shortly after I met my, my wife, Amber, before um, we got together, we were in an organization, and I had, um, I had not grown up in a family of faith, but when I started to go to church um, and read the scriptures, I read them through the lens of my life. And she was very gracious to me, um, and that there was this one month, November, where every Monday we would uh, connect at a, at a meeting in our ministry, and a topic would always come up. And she would say, well, what do you think about that? And I would answer, and she'd go, well, what do you think God thinks about that? I was like, I just told you. <laughs> and she's like, maybe you should uh, research that. I'm like, Psh. And then I would go and research it and discover that I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't tell her at the time, but now she knows. My question to you is, how much of you have let pain and loss dictate your understanding and engagement with God? How much you have, let, have you let your ambition and your desires for your life determine who God wants you to be? Our bias and our preferences reverse the relationship that we have with God. And so instead of being made in His image that He likes, that we enjoy, and we begin to learn who He has made us to be, who He wants us to be, we make God in the image that we like. And we take what we prefer about what He says, and we embrace it, and then we reject and disregard the others. Instead of letting the fullness of God inform the fullness of our lives. And so we need to move from our normal into God's normal. So what is God's normal? Well, in this passage, um, he uses three words to describe God's normal for our lives. His wisdom, his presence, and his power. And what he is ultimately after is that the normal Christian life is one that is lived influenced every day by God's presence, partnering with God's power to accomplish God's wisdom in the world. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. And I'll start with God's wisdom. In the translation we read, it said it's wisdom in its rich variety. Another translation talks about manifold wisdom. What it's talking about with wisdom is God's excellence, and he's saying it's God's excellence in diversity. One of the major errors that the church has projected onto the Christian life is that there is a uniform expression of the experience of God. And so what the church has erred in doing is saying to be a Christian is to look the same is to talk the same, is to act the same in every single situation instead of recognizing that we may have a uniform experience of God, but there is a unique expression because God has made you uniquely. 
And so his Holy Spirit coming inside of you meets you in your ethnicity and in your culture and enlightens how God has designed it and made that culture brilliant and beautiful and we need it. He has come into your personality so that you don't have to adapt some Christian language that is not who you are and who God has made you and adapt your passions and your habits, but his personality that he gave you is now illumined with his personality and his power and his spirit. And only when we embrace our uniqueness will the full beauty and brilliance of the excellence of God be made manifest in this world. And in verse 10, it says that was his grand purpose to declare to the practical world and to the spiritual realms how excellent and brilliant he is in defining the way life should go. And so the question for you is what is the excellence that God has put in you through your culture, through your personality, through your gifts, through your abilities, through your experience that he is saying, and that excellence, it must come forward because there's someone else in this room that needs it. Because he has placed you in your job. He has placed you in your family. He's placed you in this city because his excellence is so desperately needed here. And so will you allow his excellence to come forward? Because he has made you brilliantly and with great wisdom. And our city is dying for excellence. It's desperate for it. It pursues it at all cost. And it can't find it unless you reveal it in God. So how do you reveal it? It's his presence and his power through you. See, and the second aspect of his normal Christian life is that you would walk in and you would carry with you the presence of the living God. So when people interact with you, they're not interacting with some good, nice, moral Christian. They're interacting with God himself coming through you. In verse 12, he says, his hope is that through Christ, you could walk boldly and confident into his presence. In verse 17, he says that Christ would come in and make your body his home and renovate that apartment and make it a lot nicer than it currently is. In verse 19, his prayer is that we would be made complete, filled with the fullness of God. As I've meditated on that idea of what it means to live in God's presence, <laughs> got to be careful, apparently. <laughs> um, there's two different images, and I think one of the things I've lamented is that for much of my Christian life, I lived at the foot of the cross rather than living through the cross. And what I mean by that is that I lived, and I called it gospel-centered, in this constant sin, forgiveness, guilt, and shame cycle where I would rebel against God and then come and sit at the foot and say, please forgive me and let your blood wash over me. And I lived in this cycle and going, why am I powerless over this sin on a regular basis. And it's because I lived at the foot as if Christ was still crucified and his blood was still needed to be shed for my sins as opposed to him being dead and then resurrected and made alive so that in his, in his victory of resurrection, he defeats death and sin and the devil so that there's actually a victorious and a powerful life that I could walk in. Quit living at the foot of the cross. He says that through Christ, through his gospel, through his work, his presence would you have access to and that it would fill you. 
It's incomplete to look at the gospel as merely one of forgiveness over guilt and shame instead of to see it as one that of empowerment, of victory and life and overcoming by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ did in the gospel. It wasn't merely forgiveness. It was power through overcoming death, ascending into heaven and pouring His Holy Spirit into mankind. And in, if you begin to allow your life to be lived through the cross, into the presence of God, the presence goes with you. His Spirit in you, wherever you go. It is not something that comes upon us when we gather and we sing with this amazing band. It's not something where God is a stay-at-church God, refined to these walls, but He invades your marriage, your relationships, your bedroom, your workplace. He invades it all so that His kingdom presence could be with you in power and in life. And the last part is that you would partner with His power. In verse 20 and 21, it says that, that may He do more than all we could ask or imagine through His mighty power working within us. The only way to really understand His power is to look at the life of Christ as an example, not an anomaly. Because we look at Jesus as this foreign character sometime, instead of looking at us as someone who lived by faith and the power of the Spirit to demonstrate for us what that actually looked like, what a powerful, faith-filled, Spirit-filled life could be. And in doing so, we see him defeat all of his temptations. So that the three temptations that God trusted Jesus with, he could demonstrate that the temptations he trusts you with, he has power to overcome. Do you believe that? He's given you a unique temptation that is unlike someone else. Do you know why? He trusts you with that one instead of someone else. He trusts that his power is powerful enough to work it within you to reject that temptation and to live overcoming it. And then beyond that, that he would go on and you could be able to teach with wisdom that comes by the Spirit, with words that you don't even know yet. And you find yourself around people asking questions about God and life, and yet you have the ability to hear from God to speak truth into them. What I marvel at of the life of Christ is how people came to him with unique questions about their specific situation. And every single time, he was able to speak the wisdom and truth of Christ in their lives. That's how I want to live. I want to be ready at the time when people ask. And then more than that, he lived in the miraculous. The miracles are not for a small group of men and women. The miracles can be in the normal Christian life. Where you see someone facing an obstacle and you begin to pray and they overcome. When you see someone hurting and you say, let me just try and pray. Oh, it didn't work? Let's pray again. Oh, it didn't work again? Let's keep praying. Let's keep seeking. Let's keep asking. The normal Christian life that God has defined is one that is influenced daily by his presence, partnered with his power so that his excellence and his wisdom is made known throughout the world and the cosmos. And he wants to do it in you. He wants to do it through you. So the question is, um, is it possible? <laughs> because I, when I sit down with many of you, I hear your objections. And I want to defeat three of them. <laughs> we'll see if I can do it. Um, 
The first objection really kind of sounds like it's just too lofty, it's too much to ask. It's too demanding. How can I live constantly in God's presence in the midst of deadlines and deals that need to be done, a thousand distractions and people that depend on me to actually accomplish tasks? Don't I need to be just constantly locked in, like privately in a prayer closet to be in His presence? It's a good objection now, but wait till September. It's an even better one. But the second one says, I don't believe that God still is at work. Because I look at my life and it's broken and it's a mess and it's not what I want it to be. And I look at the world and it's just as broken. If God loves this place and if he loves me, why is it still broken? Why has the promise not come through? Why is it not accomplished? It's from a place of hurt and I don't want to just move on from it. We have longings and we have wants and it is right to question why God hasn't come through. It's a good objection. The last one is similar, but it just says, he doesn't want to use me. What you're talking about, that's not for me. I'm good with my life. I don't need some different version of the Christian life. Or it just says, it's probably just not what God wants to do through me. And uh, over the the vacation, I I read three different stories in in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one. And that's Nehemiah. It's only 13 chapters. You could read it this afternoon, um, and I encourage you to do it. Um, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to a king that has overthrown his nation, Israel, and defeated and destroyed Jerusalem. And And it opens with Nehemiah hearing that in Jerusalem, the walls are torn down, Jerusalem is destroyed, no one worships in the temple, that God's plans for his people do not match up with the reality of the world. And his heart is broken for it. But he still has to do his job. He's still a cupbearer to the king who just did this to his people. And so all he does at first is just privately pray. And it's a prayer of repentance. Repenting for the sin of his people and his own sin. And begging God to hear his cry to restore his purposes and his plans. Again, to restore Jerusalem. And so one of the days in which Nehemiah goes in to be a cupbearer, and I know we hear cupbearer and we think like servant that delivers the wine, but think like sommelier that knows the, the good wine. And he's like a good host of the party. He's like DJ slash sommelier. And he, so he's most to make a good enjoyment experience for the king. And he comes in, but his heart is broken. And the king sees this. And he, and he says, I've never been like this in the presence of the king. And so the king asks me, what's wrong? And in that moment, it says he prays. He doesn't pray for a long time. He can't because he's got to answer. It's a simple prayer in the midst of his workday, asking God for favor. And then he tells the king, I'm distraught because my Jerusalem is destroyed. No one worships my God amongst our people anymore. And I want to see it changed. I want to see it fixed. And the king says, well, what can I do to help? He prays again, a simple prayer. And he says, well, send me and others back and then write letters to the cities around here and tell them to give me all the resources that I need to rebuild the city that they're all scared of. And the king says, sure, what else do you need? And he sends him back to Jerusalem. And there, Nehemiah, this cupbearer, becomes not a servant but a leader of the people. And by God's power, 
in 52 days, he rebuilds Jerusalem that had been destroyed for years. Doing so in the midst of the doubts of his own people that said he couldn't do it. Doing so in the midst of threats from surrounding cities saying, we're going to destroy your work. Accusations against him. To the point where he told the people, go build, but also be ready to fight. I share that story with you because a surface looking at Nehemiah says what he is wanting to be done and seeing the brokenness in the world that he lives in restored doesn't make any sense. And we don't read Nehemiah as some exhibit of some superhero of faith. We read Nehemiah so that you would want to be Nehemiah. That there are Nehemiahs in this church that you see the brokenness. You see the brokenness in lives and in industries and in your homes, and you want it restored. And so when you hear this, will you respond in the same way to say, if the presence of God is with me, then I can partner with his power, and I can see excellence in me that I have not yet walked in, accomplish his purposes in a miraculous speed and effectiveness. That's the testimony of Nehemiah. And there are Nehemiahs in this room that need to be awakened to become entrepreneurs, to establish new businesses that will destroy the industries they're in so that they can be better. And there are Nehemiahs in this room that will raise sons and daughters to be excellent members of this world through the body of Christ. God wants to do that here, and so how? Well, I want to look at what it looks like to be positioned for God's normal Christian life. And to do so, I want to look at three positions that uh, the Scriptures present. And when I say positions, um, I had in mind uh, yoga. Um, Not because I do yoga. Um, I actually used to make fun of yoga. And then my wife said, well, why don't you try it? So I did it with her one time and uh, (laughs) discovered it was a lot harder um, and a little more difficult than I wanted. But in doing so... The whole purpose of yoga is that you would position your body to receive in those positions something unique for you. The same is true of the scriptures. And there's three positions for God's normal Christian life that he presents. The first is face down or downward dog, if you will. (laughs) This is the one that we honestly do the least. It's a position of repentance and surrender. It is both the starting position for the normal Christian life and is the position of receiving power for the normal Christian life. That you cannot start with God and His presence and His power before you bow before Him and reject your rebellion and resistance against Him. That was Paul's story. That God had to show up and he had to bow before his maker and say, I have rejected and rebelled against you, but I will turn and trust you as Lord going forward. And if you haven't done that today, it's a simple prayer. Romans 9, 10 says, all you have to do is believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and confess with your mouth and you will be saved. It's the starting position, and in doing so, the Spirit is poured into you. But what most of us need to hear is it's not just the starting position, but it is the position that we need to take if we want more of His presence and more of His power. That before Nehemiah became a leader, he bowed in repentance and surrender. That before David became king, he bowed to be anointed and to receive his calling and his direction. Some of you are longing for power and presence you don't have. But the reason you're not getting it is you're not positioned in a place of repentance and surrender to let him receive and give to you what you need in his presence and power. 
And so we need to become a people that regularly fall face down so that we can empower regularly by his presence. Face down. The second is face to face. What I mean by face to face is both honesty and being at home with God. In honesty, I mean that sometimes we go to, go to be face-to-face with God with makeup or a mask on. That we put on makeup trying to cover our blemishes, thinking maybe he'll accept us as if he doesn't know already. Or we put a mask on and we coat ourselves in um, spiritual language, thinking that we have to make it sound prettier and nicer and more kind than we actually feel in our hearts. When God's saying, come to me face-to-face and be honest, you're disappointed with God? tell him. You're angry with him? Go face to face with him instead of walking away. Because the psalmists demonstrate for us what it looks like to yell and cry and demand of God for him to come through when we're not seeing it. And only then can we find the healing. Healing is found in the honesty. Because the psalms that start with anger with God always end with acceptance and trust. But if your psalms are not done in the face-to-face with God, they won't find healing. But the second part is at home, where it says Christ to dwell at home. Now, this happened on vacation where it hit home to me because we, this is the longest vacation that we've ever taken as a family. And one of the last days that we were um, in Italy, um, when my daughter woke up, we said, hey, are you excited for, us, for what we're going to do today? And she said, I don't know. Are we going home? <laughs> <laughs> I said, whoa. I said, I hope you're having fun. Um, what do you, you want to be home? And she said, yes. I said, what, what do you miss about home? She said, I want my bed. I want my room. I want to be in our apartment. I love it. It's what I'm familiar with. I enjoy it. She was homesick. And there are times when we are not positioned face to face where we are then homesick with God. Because we were made to be at home and familiar with him. Now, we wouldn't describe it in homesick terms, but we would have these feelings of foolish frustrations where we're so easily angered and it doesn't make sense. Or we have an unexplained sense of sadness or fear that comes over us. Or there's a confusion that that we just kind of have around us and we don't know what's going on. Those feelings need to trigger something in us that says not that our circumstances need to change, but that our position with God needs to change in our circumstances. Because it needs to remind us that we haven't been face to face with Him. Because He doesn't give a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. He is not a God of confusion, but He is a God of order and clarity. And so we need to reposition ourselves in those moments to be face to face with God. And lastly, we need to be shoulder to shoulder. And this is what it looks like to partner with power, to be on God's team, to run God's plays, to be his fellow soldier fighting against the forces of darkness and evil and pain that exist in your life and in the lives of those around you to see his kingdom advance. When I think about this, I think about partnering with my wife and parenting because we need to be on the same page for the purposes in our kids' lives, because our kids are savvy. And they can sense when mom and dad are not on the same page, and so they know when to ask dad for something, and they know when to ask mom for something, or they know when to wait till mom leaves to ask for that Netflix marathon. We've all done it. No judgment. 
But if our kids are savvy, we need to recognize that the devil is savvier. And that he knows when we're not standing shoulder to shoulder in strength with God for his purposes and his plans. And he's a coward, so he waits till we stop standing shoulder to shoulder and he sees us vulnerable and then he strikes in our weakness and in our vulnerability. And so if we want to live the normal Christian life, it has to be shoulder to shoulder with God's power, partnering to see his kingdom advance in this world. Which do you need to do today? Do you need to bow before your maker in repentance for your rebellion and your rejection of him? Do you need to return home and come face to face with him? Or do you need to once again stand shoulder to shoulder, ready to walk in power and victory? Which do you need today? I want to close by telling a story of how um, the normal Christian life looked like on our vacation in an unexpected way. Because what I want you to see in this is that we made practical plans for rest and relaxation And behind our practical plans, God had these spiritual purposes that were way better than my vacation plans. And it happened in our time in Sorrento. Um, And I need to tell you how we planned our trip to help you see how God orchestrated all of these things. Uh, We chose to use a tech startup, a travel agency, (laughs) um, because one, they were cheap because they're a startup, and two, we're very busy. And so they helped us. Uh, coordinate our transportation. They found trains for us. They found hotels for us. They found events for us and then booked them when we said, yes, go with this. So they booked our transportation to Sorrento and we thought it was three trains. What we discovered after the second train is the third was actually a bus and not a train. And the last thing that's relaxing is to ride on a bus on the Amalfi Coast cliffs where the bus driver has to honk before every turn because it's a one-lane road with a cliff on the side. And so we were like, we're not going to go two and a half hours in this bus. we got to find another way. So we found a train that got us to our place an hour early. And that's important because in the place that we booked in Sorrento, 15 minutes later, a different family showed up, also American. And it was a mom with her three older kids, twin boys who were freshmen in college and a daughter who was a senior. And as we're sitting there checking in and we see them check in, I notice that one of the boys has a Make-A-Wish Foundation shirt on. And on the back it says, Wish Kid. Which means that he was diagnosed with a disease that likely is terminal. That there's not really much hope for him. And so the Make-A-Wish Foundation has chose him to do something special for him. And so in that moment, all I did was pray and said, God, you have us both here. If you would like me to pray for his healing, and pray for that family, please orchestrate a very natural, (laughs) not crazy, not spooky Christian version of being able to pray for them. So then the next morning, we were only there for two nights, so God had to work fast. And the next morning, we go to breakfast, and as we're finishing breakfast, they walk in, but we have to run off to our event, and then we don't really interact. So all that day, I'm just thinking, okay, God, like, this seems to be perfect, when are you going to do it? And so we just pray, but nothing happens that day. The next morning, we had thought we were going to go back into the town and explore Sorrento, but we decided that we just wanted to rest and just go hang out on the roof. Uh, on the roof, it had a beautiful view, and there was an jacuzzi the kids could play in. And 15 minutes later, that family comes up. And the mom says, you know, we had these plans to go down to the beach, but, you know, the kids just wanted to relax, so we decided to come on up. <laughs> 
so we started a conversation with them. And she told us the story that before Christmas in 2017, her son woke up and half his face was numb. So they went to the hospital. And they said, oh, it's probably just a virus. Here's um, some medicine. It should be fine. The next day, his whole half side of his right side of his body was numb. They rushed back to the hospital. They got an MRI. And then all chaos broke out, she said. Chaplains came to sit down next to her to prepare her for what might happen. And what they told her is that there was a brain bleed in a place that was inoperable in his brain. That a tumor and blood vessels had grown in such a way that they were not sure they could stop the bleeding. And there wasn't much hope. But the good news was that they were at a place where they was establishing a brain surgery center that was going to be innovative and the first of its kind in our country. So there was a doctor in town that may know something. So they called him. And that doctor said, I've never operated on something like this, but I know a doctor in New York who has. Let me call him. And it just so happened that that doctor was moving to that town to be a part of this brain surgery center. And so not only that, but he was there that week to find a home for his family. And so that doctor came in and guided them into this innovative and experimental surgery to be able to stop the bleeding. And then guided them through experiments of radiation. So he began to establish his functioning again because he had lost functioning. But in the process, Make-A-Wish had granted him one wish. And he chose Italy. And they arranged him to go to three cities, Tuscany, Rome, and Sorrento. And they booked all of their stays. And so they booked this hotel. There we were, both booked by things that we did not control in our practical plans. And then the mom said, oh my gosh, I'm talking way too much. What do you do? (laughs) So, well, I'm a pastor um, in New York City. Really, tell me about your church. (laughs) So I told her about what God has been doing in our church with miracles and signs and wonders and healing. She began to ask how I became a pastor, and I told her my testimony, and I talked through that with her. And she said, this may sound crazy, and my kids may think I'm weird, but would you pray for us? (laughs) And there on the rooftop, we just held hands and prayed. And I prayed for his healing. And I prayed that God would restore all that had been lost in that family over two years. I said amen, and then we had to go on to our next destination. Yesterday, she reached out to me um, by email. And she said, I was meditating with God this morning, and I was overwhelmed with emotion of how he aligned us in the same spot at that same moment. And she said, I was just blown away by that. And after your prayer for the first time since December 2017, I have real hope that God actually cares and wants to perform a miracle in my son's life. I share that with you because it was not my plan to pray for someone that had a brain tumor from a -A Make-A-Wish Foundation in Sorrento. Just like it is not your plan tomorrow for God to interrupt your work schedule to do something miraculous in your workplace. But do you know that God's to-do list is far greater than yours? And yet he's chosen you to have his spirit and his power and his excellence so that you can carry that with you wherever you go. God wants to do something in this city that it's never seen. And he wants to do it through us. But the question is, will we settle for our normal version of the Christian life that is so powerless? Or will we choose God's version of the normal Christian life filled with his presence, 
partnering with his power and allowing his excellence and his wisdom to be manifested in every inch of this city. Will we choose his way? Let's pray. Father, I bow my head to repent of the lost years in my own life of choosing my bias and my preference over yours. And I repent on behalf of our church for the years and the times in each of our individual lives where instead of saying yes to you or instead of looking in ways that you might move, we've chosen to settle for less than your power and your presence. That I declare, God, by your name and for your kingdom's sake, that we will never do it again. And we ask by your spirit that you would empower us and work through us to open our eyes to see how you are moving and to trust that your power can and will work through us to accomplish grander things than we've ever seen. God, give us faith to believe and pour your presence and power into this body to accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine so that you receive the glory and you receive the praise and you are worshipped in this city and your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. It's for your name, Christ, that we pray these things. Amen.